afternoon and welcome to the 29th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject of our call is COVID-19 and public health with David Barnes and Michael Udell. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. Use my handle, at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. Please do help me spread the word about COVID calls and send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself. I just want to make a small note here. I'm actually, um, I've been very pleased in the last uh, week or so that I've been, uh, several journalists have reached out asking um, for suggestions for experts in one or another area. And I am very pleased to try to serve uh, the COVID calls to serve in, in that way. So if you're a journalist working on a story or if you're a researcher looking um, for re researchers working in similar areas, that's part of what this venue is supposed to serve. So please do reach out to me by email or by Twitter. Tomorrow, we're gonna to talk to journalist Virginia Heffernan. Virginia Heffernan writes for the LA Times. She's a contributing writer for Wired Magazine, and she is the host of the Trump cast on Slate, as well as being an author and cultural critic. We will talk about Trump, and we've been talking about Trump, but tomorrow we're gonna to focus on Trump and on the presidency. We're gonna talk about governors, we're gonna talk about leadership, we're gonna talk about this moment in American culture, and much more, a good conversation for a Friday afternoon. There is such a thing right now. Please do join us tomorrow as I talk with Virginia Heffernan on COVID calls. As of today, there are 2,682,225 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 2,622,571 cases yesterday. 856,209 of those are in the United States, up from 839,836 yesterday. There are now a total of 47,272 deaths reported in the United States, according to Johns Hopkins, up from 46,079 yesterday. 443 of those are in the city of Philadelphia. An epidemic sweeps the city. The president and Congress leave town. The disease is poorly understood. Doctors squabble over the science, the treatments. Blame is placed on foreigners and the burden of care falls unfairly on the shoulders of the disenfranchised, the poor and African-Americans. As the death toll mounts, some doctors, some public officials act creatively. We might even say heroically. This is 2020, but in fact, what I'm talking about is the yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia in 1793, an epidemic that killed perhaps as many as 5,000 people in a city of 50,000, if you can imagine that. It was the first city of America at that time. The capital, it was sort of like Washington DC and New York City of today all rolled together into one. But what good is this story to us now? Is there something to be learned from this epidemic in the past? Have we been learning from it all along perhaps in these two and a quarter centuries ever since then? Or is this just a parlor trick for historians? an ancient tale, a reminder that people don't seem to learn from their past mistakes. I wanted to get some perspective on our public health history and the ways that history itself, as we understand it, 
works and changes across time. And so I invited two public health historians to come on today when COVID calls and talk about this with me. So let me introduce them now. David Barnes teaches the history of medicine and public health in the Department of History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. At Penn, he is the director of the Interdisciplinary Health and Societies major and also teaches in the MPH program. He is the author of Making a Social Disease, Tuberculosis in 19th Century France and The Great Stink of Paris and the 19th Century Struggle Against Filth and Germs. He also has an ongoing project on the Lazaretto Quarantine Station, which was used throughout the 19th century on the Delaware River outside of Philadelphia. It's the oldest surviving quarantine station in the Western Hemisphere and the sixth oldest in the world. He's part of a preservation campaign to save the Lazaretto. We'll certainly talk about that today. My second guest is Michael Udell, professor and chair of the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the Drexel Dornsife School of Public Health. He's an award-winning historian and ethicist of public health whose work focuses on the history and ethics of genomics, the history of the race concept, and the history and ethics of autism research. Michael Udell also directs the program in public health ethics and history at the Dornsife School of Public Health. He is the author of Race Unmasked, Biology and Race in the 20th Century, and the co-author of Welcome to the Genome, a user's guide to the genetic past, present, and future. He is also an affiliated faculty member of my Department of History at Drexel University. Welcome David Barnes and welcome Michael Udell to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. So I'd like to remind people, please do send your questions and get them in as early as you can. And I'll turn to your questions throughout the session today. You can send them in the chat, uh, YouTube live chat. You can email them directly to me sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can send them to me by Twitter, which works pretty well, just tag at US of Disaster. So let's jump right in, and I'd like to start with the question I've been asking everyone. Um, let me start with you, David Barnes. How are things with you? How are things in Philadelphia? Well, um, interestingly, I may have had COVID-19. Um, last month, I had a mild fever for a couple of days and cough with no congestion, which is unusual for me. I'm actually fairly healthy normally. And uh, uh, if any time I've ever had a fever and cough, I've also had congestion, you know, classic mm -hmm. flu. And uh, so this was unusual. The, um, the fever went away pretty quickly. It was never that bad. And the cough lingered, um, as coughs sometimes do. I never, there was no reason to get tested. I corresponded with my primary care doctor, and she said, given my description of symptoms, et cetera, that I probably had it. Uh, in any case, I'm feeling fine. I'm quarantining outside of the city at my partner's house in Doylestown, much as 18th and 19th century Philadelphians would have, uh, if they had the option, right. uh, fled the city to, uh, to seek safety uh, uh, outside in the, in the country or in the high ground. Um, and I'm, like everybody else, watching the news uh, anxiously and alternating between utter despair and milder despair. How are you feeling now, other than despair? Um, yeah, physically, physically, I feel fine. 
and um, uh, you know, like other people I know who um, either definitely had this disease and have recovered or think they probably did, I'm, I feel like I should be able to do something useful and helpful um, and maybe take advantage of uh, the fact that I, that I may have had this. But um, at this point, you know, I, I don't see any immediate options. Did you have this enormous fatigue that some people describe with it as well? No, it was mild, mild mm -hmm. fatigue and just your, your basic sort of 100, 101 degree fever for a couple of days. It was really, um, it, was, it was nothing severe at all physically. Well, if you believe the president of Purdue University and if University of Pennsylvania follows the same path, then in the fall you will be, you will be issued some kind of a special card and yeah. you'll go back to campus as one of the uh, survivors and yeah. you'll be teaching in the classroom, apparently. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Michael, let me turn if, to you. I was just going to say, hopefully the immunity from this is long lasting. Yeah, absolutely. If that yeah. is the case. Yeah. Um, which we don't know yet. Uh, so I, I'm doing okay. It's nice to be here with you both. Um, you know, uh, my family and everybody has been well through this. Uh, had to uh, strongly encourage uh, family members, especially parents, to, to not go out, especially early on. Um, seems to be a, a not uncommon phenomenon in in an older and more vulnerable age group. Um, but I, I think, you know, like, like David, there's some despair. I think I, I feel certainly a whole lot of anger um, at the way this has been mishandled and the fact that we're now, uh, you know, really seven, six, seven weeks into the active stage of this um, and the federal response remains a mess. Uh, if I shift back to our perspective as historians, I think one of the things that's been striking for me, and I suspect that you both feel this to some degree, is just how uncanny this whole thing feels. Um, as, you know, especially for David and I, who study some of these earlier epidemics, and for you, Scott, who study disasters, watching this play out in real time, um, being familiar with the way in which events like this erupt and evolve, um, there's a there's a familiarity to it um, that is uncomfortable in some ways. You know, from all of our historical actors, whether it be um, Benjamin Rush uh, in 1793 and some of his compatriots from from that outbreak that I suspect we'll spend a few minutes talking about, or Mary Mallon in the early 20th century and what she means for asymptomatic carriers, which there seem to be a whole heck of a lot of, I don't know if you guys saw the data out of New York today, which estimates about 20, 22% of New Yorkers uh, have antibodies for COVID-19. Um, and we could go on with that list. Uh, and it's, I think, you know, one of the striking things to me was to hear people who are not historians say, how could this happen? Nothing like this has ever happened before. And, you know, I don't know, maybe we're better equipped to deal with the, the to, or, or to have some perspective on this, given that we're historians and that we've seen these things and we've studied these things. But um, boy, we've got our work cut out for us if most people, you know, are are totally fresh faced to all this stuff and don't believe that 
um, you know, uh, infectious disease and pandemics can, you know, for, for better, well, well, for worse, be a functional part of societies for very long periods of time. Hopefully that is not the case here. Um, our medical technologies have evolved to a point where uh, we are able to conduct surveillance in ways that um, Benjamin Rush and his compatriots could not in 1793. They didn't even know what the underlying cause of the illness was then. Um, and hopefully we will be able to develop a vaccine and other medical interventions to decrease the burden of this disease. Well, I think that's, that's the right segue to start our conversation. I'd like to start by talking about some of these historical cases. And I know even treating them separately potentially does a little bit of damage to history, but let's start with that and see where we get in our conversation. You know, I started um, the conversation earlier talking about 1793, and Michael, you, you talked a bit about it just, just now. David, let me come to you first. Um, 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia uh, by the numbers would be on the scale of 33 million people dying in America today if something like that happened an extraordinary disaster for yeah. the city it's locked up in the past somehow it's available to us now it's relevant help us understand the event a little bit and then maybe we can talk about what we should have been taking away from it well 1793 was deeply traumatizing to uh, the city of Philadelphia, but also to the nation as a whole, the young and much smaller uh, nation than the one we know today. And uh, I think the, the it's hard for us today to appreciate the sense of loss and devastation and um, deep, deep psychological trauma that was left by that epidemic. Not only that epidemic, um, yellow fever returned to Philadelphia in 1797, and again in 1798, and again in 1799. So it's not just this one-off horrifying event. As you said, Philadelphia was the nation's capital. It was the largest city. It was the busiest seaport. It was the capital of um, it was the capital of medicine and uh, science and uh, culture to a great degree. Uh, and it really, the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s raised serious doubts about the future viability of the city of Philadelphia and indeed of uh, large cities in North America at all. Thomas Jefferson, uh, who was vice president during the 1798 epidemic, wrote to his friend Benjamin Rush that he hoped that the silver lining essentially in this epidemic would be that cities would be depopulated and that Americans would learn the lesson that cities are, uh, are terrible for civilization and for democracy. Thankfully, Jefferson's prediction was wrong, uh, but it um, gives a sense of the deep and enduring trauma that even those who didn't experience those uh, epidemics directly um, remembered in some sense the trauma decades after because they lived in a world that had been shaped and defined by those epidemics. If you try to follow those those traces and lines out from the 1793 epidemic, where do you look to 
to find them. You talked about trauma. There's such mm -hmm. a powerful word to use in this regard. And you talk about memory. Where do you spot it? You see it in new institutions that were formed and, and somehow became part of the fabric of the way the city thought about safety, or you see it, where do you see that linkage across time? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly visible in institutions. Philadelphia uh, established the first permanently functioning Board of Health in the United States in 1794, immediately following the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. And um, it established a new infrastructure in a, an unprecedented, uh, municipal system of water supply, beginning with the waterworks at uh, Center Square, the site that is now City Hall, uh, and uh, in 1800, and then uh, in the 1810s, a brand new uh, neoclassical, state-of-the-art waterworks on uh, Fairmount, just out outside of the city on the Schuylkill River, and um, those were the immediate and obvious public health uh, consequences of the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s and the board of health operates to this day under a, a different name but uh, has been permanently functioning since 1794 responsible mm -hmm. for um, protecting and improving the health of uh, philadelphians as far as the psychological trauma it's difficult to see uh, directly, one can see in the letters and diaries of people who lived through this a sense of grief, uh, a sense of horror and and terror. Most most people who had anywhere else to go fled more or less immediately, not just in 1793, but particularly those who remembered 1793 at the first sign of the yellow fever in subsequent summers uh, left town. Of course, that meant that the wealthy and powerful fled town, and those who were left in Philadelphia were those who had nowhere else to go. So this is um, one among innumerable instances in history of the, um, the poor, the marginalized, vulnerable populations paying a disproportionate toll uh, during epidemics. So Michael, the, the 1793 epidemic falls hardest on those who couldn't leave. It also exposed racial fractures in a city that I think for its time, you would have to say in some measure was, was progressive. I mean, there, it's a, the, the most important city in a state that had passed a gradual slavery abolition law. It was a leader in that regard. And yet this epidemic created its own racial strife as well as a sort of fear of the outsider, the foreigner, the French, I mean, could you say a little bit more about how these fears crystallized in that moment and, and maybe why they did? Sure. Um, so in 1793, Philadelphia had a, a good-sized free uh, Black population. Um, and that population uh, had mixed relationships with the the city. Um, racism was a way of life then, of course. Slavery was, you know, a, a part of the American fabric. Um, and during the outbreak, uh, leaders of the free Black community were turned to to help uh, nurse the ill, 
Um, they were caretakers of the sick. Uh, they helped bury uh, people from both the free black community and the community more widely in Philadelphia. And Dr. Benjamin Rush um, had, who you know, historically had for the time would have been considered a progressive in many ways by some, although uh, there's certainly uh, some controversy over his perspective on, on perspectives on race at that time. Um, he turned to some of his friends in the black community, uh, most notably Epsilon Jones and, and Richard Allen, um, for help uh, in, 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 this, in this dire moment. Um, and part of that was due because of the belief that uh, African people and African Americans may have been immune to uh, yellow fever. Um, there are those who would make that argument based on the fact that they had been exposed perhaps uh, coming from Africa and the West Indies and others who would have made that argument from the perspective of racial science or, 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 or racial medicine that um, different peoples had different vulnerabilities to different diseases based on their skin color. Um, nevertheless, Allen and Jones rose to the occasion um, and, you know, uh, understood what they were being called on to do and, and, and why, um, and helped the city in a, a very difficult and dangerous moment um, in, in our history. I think, you know, one of the things that is striking um, is the, the the selflessness of that moment, uh, especially given the racism that was such a part of of the cities and the national culture at the time, um, and yet racism was still a part of that response. And other city leaders, besides Rush, attacked uh, Jones, Allen, and other free blacks for taking advantage of the situation for, you know, charging extra for disposing of bodies and other, other things that were, were slanderous and, and untrue. Um, so racism was, was baked into the system then. Um, and, you know, while I don't think we have, a, we don't have a good measurement of the disparities as they hit different populations, the disparities in who got sick and who didn't, um, one can imagine that the wealthier who at that point were more likely to be, you know, white landowners were able to leave the city um, and go to Princeton, to Germantown, um, and, and across the river to other places. So let's talk uh, for a moment then about some of the other after effects of this. And David, uh, I attended a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, um, you had uh, a, a kind of a living history event at the Lazaretto in Philadelphia, and uh, there were people there in um, historical reenactors mm -hmm. who were playing a role of medicine across time, not only from that time of the early mm -hmm. 19th century, but across history. And there were a lot of children there and really learning, and it was really fascinating. It, it was the first time I had seen that kind of, most reenactments I've ever seen were Civil War reenactments, but this was mm -hmm. like a care and concern reenactment, which I think we could mm -hmm. use a lot more of these days. To, what is the Lazaretto and why should people care about it now? Why do people reenact what's happened there? The Lazaretto uh, was not the first quarantine station in uh, North America, but it is uh, unique in that it has 
survived since uh, its construction beginning in 1799. Um, at the time of the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s, Philadelphia, the Port of Philadelphia did have a quarantine policy and it did have a quarantine station uh, at the mouth of the Schuylkill River next to Fort Mifflin, which was sometimes called the Marine Hospital and sometimes called the Lazaretto. Lazaretto was an Italian word that was used to, uh, from uh, Lazarus, the patron saint of lepers, mm. uh, that was used to designate the first uh, quarantine stations and isolation hospitals in Mediterranean ports beginning in Venice uh, in the early modern period. So first in the uh, 14th century, then 15th, 16th, 17th century. Uh, so the quarantine in the 1790s in Philadelphia was enforced very unevenly and uh, ineffectively after these four devastating epidemics within the span of um, six, seven years, the, um, the city leaders realized that uh, something had to change. This quarantine wasn't working. Some of the doctors claimed that the disease originated locally in accumulations of filth under certain meteorological conditions. Other doctors said the disease was transmitted from person to person and it was brought in on ships from the West Indies and uh, could be stopped by quarantine. There was a, uh, a vigorous debate and very bitter and unproductive debate uh, over a period of years. Finally, a compromise emerged in which the uh, newly established Board of Health decided, look, we're gonna act as if both camps are correct. We're mm -hmm. going to clean up the city, we're gonna clean up the filth, and we're going to enforce a strict quarantine. In order to do so, they needed uh, a new location, farther away from the city to prevent uh, contact between residents of the city and the ships and people who were undergoing quarantine. So the um, city purchased a 10-acre site on Tinicum Island in um, Delaware County, just downriver from the city, about uh, 12 miles downriver, and established a big uh, state-of-the-art quarantine station and resolved to enforce quarantine very strictly from then on. Beginning in 1801, when the, uh, the new Lazaretto opened on Tinicum Island through 1895, uh, quarantine was practiced during the warm weather months of the year, which was the time that uh, yellow fever was a threat. But yellow fever wasn't the only disease the Board of Health was trying to prevent. It was simply the, uh, the one that had uh, provided the impetus to create the Lazaretto. The commercial interests of the city, I would think there'd have been some pressure not to not to do that. You're slowing commerce, right, by two weeks yeah. every time ships are coming in. Some of those cargoes, you don't want to have to wait those two weeks. Quarantine was deeply unpopular. Uh, then, as now, everybody hated quarantine. Nobody liked it. Uh, the, the problem is, though, those same uh, merchants who hated the delay and uh, loss of money entailed by quarantine had also lived through the devastation of the 1790s. The only thing worse for business than quarantine is a yellow fever epidemic. 
So um, nobody liked quarantine. The um, sailors and sea captains and merchants and passengers uh, who had to undergo it uh, hated the inconvenience and the delay. Um, doctors were never particularly happy with it, thought it was uh, inefficient. Um, politicians were always criticizing it. And yet it survived um, uh, because, well, for, for a number of reasons, the, the, um, the city had to do something. It was an expression of resolve. It was, it was an expression of the city's commitment to protect the health of the population. It was also a sort of um, err on the side of caution move. And um, after the new Lazaretto opened in 1801, Indeed, the intensity and frequency of yellow fever epidemics dropped dramatically. Historians still aren't entirely sure why that was. It's, uh, in my view, quarantine was one ingredient in that decline. It couldn't have been the only explanation, but it, uh, I believe it did contribute. I've yet to hear that um historical analogy deployed in our discussions right now about some states opening and other states not opening in the, in the United States. Maybe I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen that one talked about in this, in this moment? Which argument? The Lazaretto discussion and this, oh. the fact that government, it is not the first time government has had to try to uh, balance competing interests around opening the economy and taking the larger uh, concern of public health into account. Well, that, of course, um, that is uh, what everybody's talking about today. Now, um, in the 19th century, there were similar debates happening on, um, on a daily basis, but it was usually a matter of special pleadings. Don't, don't detain my ship because it's coming from a port that was safe and healthy at the time that it left. Um, or don't detain my ship because the cargo is uh, subject to spoilage, and it's not the kind of cargo that could spread disease anyway. Um, however, I think the one can see um, one can see similar patterns in the general push and pull of um, loosen up the reins, tighten up the reins. When there are um, signs of alarm, epidemics in other places or illnesses aboard ships that are arriving, there's an impulse to tighten up the reins and um, an impulse for security. At other times, there's uh, more of a sense of be flexible, let commerce flow freely, and um, you know, until, until something, until there are signs of alarm. Michael, I want to bring the historical timeline forward um, and talk about 1918. And in fact, I have a question already in. Um, from Chuck Haas, and a uh, very good question. He's asking, to what degree was the 1918 pandemic treated as unprecedented? And he says, from what I understand, this was the first pandemic after the universal acceptance of the germ theory of disease. 1918 has been much more in popular discussion than 1793 or than the Lazaretto. And then, of course, there's a strong Philadelphia component to the 1918 story. I wonder if you'd be willing to share some of your thoughts about that analogy, and particularly this issue about how scientific understanding of disease had changed by then. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think 
in the wake of germ theory and the bacteriological revolution, there were all these illnesses that were, you know, part of our society. They were endemic, right? We had tuberculosis and typhoid and other illnesses that would come and go. Um, nothing to the extent of the 1918 flu in terms of, of, of the devastation that it caused, uh, both in terms of the economy and in terms of deaths. Um, the, the epidemic has a particular <laughs> resonance here in Philadelphia. Um, and you can see behind me, uh, where it's a, it's a photo of the Liberty Loan Parade, which took place on September 28, 1918 here in Philadelphia. And there've been cases of the flu, uh, many of the, uh, medical experts had warned the city uh, perhaps not to hold this parade um, under the, the suggestion of the, the, the head of public health at the time, Wilmer Crewson, the parade went ahead. It was a patriotic parade. It was to raise funds for, for the war effort um, and politics won out over public health in this case. Uh, and within days of this event, I think David, it's about 200,000 people showed up to, to line Broad Street at the time. Right. Um, and uh, Philadelphia's hospitals were filled, you know, with, within a week um, and, uh, you know, over capacity. People were, were essentially dying in their homes because of the rapid spread of this illness. Um, you know, we, we, we may remember back uh, to just, seven weeks ago, six weeks ago, um, when Philadelphia was preparing, like many other cities across the United States, to hold uh, its, its St. Patrick's Day parade. And for a few days, it seemed just as uh, the, the, the pandemic was heating up here in this country that the city was going to go ahead with that parade, even after um, parades had been banned in Ireland. Um, I think Boston canceled first here in the U.S., and New York and Philly were slower to make that choice. Um, and you know, the historians around the city were, were you know, apoplectic, you got to cancel this parade, we can't do this, yeah. we can't do this again to ourselves. Um, and as it turned out, Philly in 1918 uh, was hit the hardest of any major city because it did not uh, enforce any types of social distancing measures until after the pandemic struck here with, with such fierceness. Uh, other cities like St. Louis, which um, were much more thoughtful about this had and, and enforced social distancing, uh, had much lower rates of, of, of deaths from flu and the disease itself. One of the questions that has been on my mind around 1918, and maybe we can use that as a way to come to the present is, you know, that is a, a pandemic that occurred in the midst of wartime. So in one sense, it, it has made it perhaps harder for us to see it historically because it's a compound of sort of overwhelming things happening in society. But there's a, there's a part of that that I think is particularly relevant and it has to do with um, the free flow of information, the degree to which people did or didn't know what was happening in the moment. And I guess I'd like to know more about that if either of you could sort of say a little bit more about word 
were physicians and people in public health able to share information in that time? There were not a lot of news stories in the press in the United States about the pandemic, in part because of war measures to suppress mm -hmm. bad news in the middle of World yeah. War I. Okay, leave that for a second, but, but were mayors communicating? Were public health officials communicating? Were doctors communicating? Or, or was this a case where lack of transparency and suppression really fed the disaster? I'll put that to either one of you if you, if you know, because I'm concerned about how we're thinking about how information should flow right now about the pandemic that we're living in today. Well, there were, uh, public health institutions were um, fairly well developed in 1918, and uh, folks who were on the front lines were certainly alarmed. They knew what was going on, and uh, they were communicating among themselves. However, as you said, Scott, this was wartime. And uh, you, you don't mess with morale during wartime. And uh, this is a problem going back. It's, it's easy to judge in hindsight, to judge harshly uh, public health officials or politicians who try to cover up the early signs of an epidemic. Because we know what happened. We know that it did turn into an epidemic. It did turn into a deadly pandemic. In the early days, uh, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's very difficult to say because particularly if you're aware of past epidemics and the panic and unproductive public reaction that have come along with epidemics, it's difficult to stand up there in the very early stages and say, we've got cases of yellow fever, of flu, of cholera, and uh, I'm worried that it's going to get worse. There are very few incentives to do that in the early days, even though we would like, in hindsight, we would like everyone to have been courageous enough to, to do that. Michael, do you have any, any thoughts about you know, connecting that to our moment right now and the struggles of communication that public health leaders have found in this moment? Well, I mean, if it, what I would add to what David said is we just communicate so differently today, right? I mean, the channels of communication are so radically different. Um, and, you know, we can make arguments about, you know, sort of the ebb and flow of scientific and medical authority, but we're living in this funny moment where, you know, scientific and or medical authority can exist independent of sort of political whim. And we're living in this, you know, odd, odd time where, uh, you know, our president is, is promoting, uh, you know, drugs for the treatment of coronavirus um, that are untested and saying, hey, what the heck, we might as well do it anyway, um, to the astonishment of those in public health and medicine and in our world and in history of medicine and public health. And I, I think, you know, the proliferation of ways in which we communicate has in some ways done us this harm and it allows you know any expert at any time to share ideas and perspectives in a way that you know goes so far beyond peer review or sort of you know a, a community assessment of ideas and opinions um, that exist in so many places now that it's impossible to manage and yes it's true that you know people communicated in a variety of ways back then through pamphlets and 
and you know other other ways to exchange ideas but the ease at which somebody can claim to be an expert right now um i think is so damaging to our ability as public health experts to get out information that makes sense i think the other thing is that because everything is recorded in real time and preserved and can be used as a cudgel against any of us at any time something that we might have said three months ago or two months ago or two weeks ago may be different now and may have changed based on data like face masks is an example you know like you know at the beginning of this public health and medical experts said don't use masks you may in fact spread disease by using masks because you may use them wrong um, and think you are protecting yourself or being or, or protecting others and now data suggests you know we'll see where that stands in another month but data suggests that in public we should be wearing masks so i, I think the overwhelming nature of communication today is so different than what it was in 1918 and i think you know public health agencies are are doing their best to both keep out in front of that you know tsunami of of information um but it's it's a tough battle so david it seems that in what you're describing and what michael's describing i mean there are some key differences but where the the burden of the disease seems to be falling at least where we're looking at it from today there are patterns of vulnerability and inequality that once again seem to be returning to us in terms of where the disease is manifest i mean can you help explain that i mean i guess i'm asking you to explain the history of poverty in america sorry it's a big question but but can we get a little bit deeper with that and, and understand why those vulnerabilities persist across time even if we know that they have previously this is a this is a really important question and i think has been one that has been neglected in the discussion of the COVID 19 <clears throat> pandemic um you know i'm constantly seeing everywhere um germs don't discriminate be careful be safe germs don't discriminate uh, you know, uh, and I understand the impulse behind that. Yes, it's true that anyone could potentially get infected with this. In fact, um, we have to face up to the fact that germs do discriminate. That is to say, infectious diseases do not affect everybody equally. They do not affect all sectors of society equally, and they never have. Each disease is different. Yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes, we now know, and uh, anyone who's, you know, uh, exposed to, you know, infected mosquito could get infected. However, um, you know, as I said earlier, in the case with, of yellow fever epidemics, those who could leave town were protected because they were um, uh, out of the reach of danger. Um, and in the case of every infectious disease throughout history, the impact has been unequal and um, has been felt most acutely among uh, the poor, the disenfranchised, and the marginalized. And we're certainly seeing that today. And I think it's going to become even more clear in the coming weeks and months as we get more data. And the fact is that. Um, in, in, the, in many infectious diseases, simply being exposed to the germ is not enough to make one sick or, uh, or at least not enough to make one severely ill. It's the 
strength of the immune response that determines the severity of the illness and the likelihood of dying. And immune response is determined by uh, many factors, but uh, class, income, employment status, uh, housing conditions, position in one's position in society to a large extent determines the strength of one's immune response. Again, different in um, uh, different diseases, but I keep being reminded uh, today during this pandemic of um, a phrase that uh, I'm borrowing from a colleague historian, Chris Hamlin of Notre Dame. Chris said, um, uh, where knowledge exists concerning disease prevention and the factors that sustain life and health, the map of the availability of those factors is the map of rights that exist in a given society. I think it's just, that just says it perfectly, that captures uh, what we know about epidemics in the past. And I think we will find when we look at the map of um, deaths from COVID-19 in our city, in our country, and in the world, we will find the map of rights that exist in our society. people that you're listening to COVID calls and today we're talking about public health history and the pandemic with David Barnes and Michael Udell. Please do get your questions in to YouTube live chat or uh, tag me on Twitter at US of Disaster or email them to me directly. Michael, David's point about the um, social position as an indicator of immune response and the sort of map of rights concept that you know as a way to envision where we're gonna ultimately see the disease hit people the hardest. So I guess to my mind though, um, I can't blame Donald Trump for the persistence of petrochemical factories uh, and, and next to communities of color. I can't, I mean, how much of this do I put at the feet of the administration and how much of this is something else about the way public health works in America? Uh, well, this is something, uh, you know, we've, in the public health world, we've obviously been thinking a lot about and seeing the way in which, you know, in a, in a similar way to the way in which history is playing out, we are seeing a, a, a similar playing out of historic health disparities. Um, and, you know, can we blame Trump? You know, there's a lot to blame Trump for, historic health disparities are not one of them as they're situated in history, but for the way in which he has conducted himself in office, reinforcing the ideas that underlay many of those disparities, we can certainly lay some blame at his feet for. Um, but I, I think what is, you know, amazing to me, and it's something that, you know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about, which is, the way in which public health in this country, certainly academic public health, has been you know, conducting itself over the past few decades in terms of investigating disparities and measuring disparities 
is that getting at fixing the problem of health disparities? And, and what, what is the distance between the work that we do as a field in terms of identifying these disparities and what we are clearly not doing in terms of pushing politicians and the public to address these disparities? And, you know, Philadelphia is another great example because we can look back to um, the sociologist and civil, later civil rights leader, W.E.B. Du Bois, who came here fresh from his PhD at Harvard um, to take up a temporary position uh, at David's institution across the street from Mars to conduct a city looking at the state of Philadelphia's African-American community. Um, and he spent a couple of months walking uh, the, the seventh ward of Philadelphia, which is you know basically the South Street corridor between I think 4th and 26th Street or, or basically the Schuylkill River. Um, and you know, as part of his project, identified what he did not specifically name as health disparities, but understood them to be just that, um, that were caused by poverty, historic racism, educational housing, and other opportunities that were not equally distributed throughout the city. And he understood that that unequal distribution had an incredible bearing on the health of Philadelphia's black population at the time. So that was 124 years ago. Um, and here we are, 124 years later, still trying to quantify health disparities that we know exist. And yes, the Band-Aid has been ripped off, um, you know, society's blindness for, for understanding that these disparities exist and plague communities of color because of racism and plague different communities because of educational differences and housing differences. Um, and job differences and, you know, ultimately differences in income. Um, but what is public health going to do now? How do we pivot to push society to really take up these issues in a way that leads to change? Because we could measure this stuff to death, which in some ways is what we've been doing. I think public health is in a bind here. Uh, and David, I want to turn this to you because, and disaster research is in a bind here too, because the grounds upon which expertise makes its case in the public square is scientific grounds. It's, it's, the, it's the gathering of scientific consensus. It's the winning of grants. It's the founding of institutes. It's the publication of peer review papers. And, it, and that means a thoroughgoing scientification of, of social problems. And so no, I'm talking about like the world of emergency management here, for example. And that's the basis. And the assumption has been if we attack this as a scientific problem, even something as messy as human behavior under stress, let's say, disaster sociologists have worked on that for 75 years. Mm -hmm. That, that then that makes it so easy for our political leadership to then take those findings and transform that into action, into policies. But if you, the bind is then, there's another path, of course, which is the path of the activist. 
and just to say, there's things here that are wrong and we need you to change those things. And I don't need a peer reviewed paper. I just know, as Michael was saying, I can walk these streets as Du Bois did and I see the same disparities. I'm not gonna give you your peer reviewed paper. I demand change now. Maybe it's a false choice, but I just wonder what you think about this because I feel like researchers have kind of bound themselves in a scientific space that doesn't leave a space for activism. And I'm not sure either, frankly, is moving the needle. Yeah, no, you're right, Scott. I, um, the easy, obvious answer to this is, well, we need both. We need activists and we need scientific research. What, uh, what frustrates me about public health is that uh, so much of the work that is done in the, on the research end and so, much of the, so many of the initiatives on the policy end are disease specific. We see public health mm. as the fight against specific discrete disease entities and each disease has its own characteristics and we fight each disease separately with different tools. And um, there are very good reasons for this. There are historical reasons for this. You know, in, uh, among them, the bacteriological revolution, we discovered what truly caused disease and what truly caused disease was not poverty or vulner social vulnerability, but specific microorganisms. And so we looked for interventions that would target specific microorganisms. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the same people who are vulnerable to this specific germ are gonna be vulnerable to other specific germs. And if you vaccinate them against this one disease, if you protect them against this one disease, that's great, uh, but it won't protect them against all the other germs, all the other diseases. So um, what I would love to see is both activism and science that approaches public health from a non-disease specific perspective. And that looks at, for example, uh, what can we do to um, improve immunity? What can we do to diminish the vulnerability of certain populations to all diseases? And that's a question for scientific research, and that's a question for um, policy activism. I wanna uh, come to yeah. a question here from Patrick Roberts, which I think builds on our conversation quite, quite well. I mean, Patrick's question is this, um, and he wants to situate it historically. What has made some people act with the good of the community in mind? That is to follow public health advice or to donate or to volunteer. And if I could just build on that question a little bit, do we find historically that in moments of epidemic, pandemic, that that pro-social, response is an opening for policy reform, that, that there's some sort of a continuation of, of that somehow. I mean, you talked about the Lazaretto, David, as a, as a form of a response, or the foundation of the public health department as a form of a response that presumably is building on pro-social behavior during and after disaster. I don't, I, I don't know, either one of you wanna pick up this question from Patrick Roberts, how do we build on the desire of people to help. Well, I, the, the one thing that I would say is I, for, for all of our anger and frustration and dread that we're all feeling right now, I think we are living in, a, in an extraordinary moment where most people 
are staying home. They are making tremendous sacrifices. Um, and I think this is what you're alluding to. Um, so I, how do we translate the goodwill of, you know, of Americans into some type of sustained, not just policy response, but really fundamental change? We're, we're not, I, you know, we could talk about individual policies, but we're, we're talking to some degree about reorganizing the way we think about our society. Um, and, you know, the United States has always sort of drifted between these moments of, you know, rugged individualism and collective action. And that collective action has been seen in response to tragedies and wars. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, been seen in response to injustices, the civil rights movement and other movements for social justice um, that were coming to a close at the beginning of all, all the three of our lifetimes. Um, and can we capitalize on this moment to create something similar to that because I think you know justice for different populations who have been left behind or forgotten um, is really essential to this moment uh, I think you know one thing that schools of public health might start thinking about um, is breaking down their disciplinary silos uh, much more than they have historically and to stop thinking strictly as epidemiologists or community health scientists um, or environmental health scientists and thinking about how to attack problems across disciplinary domains to ignite some of that, at least from within academia. And then maybe also think about both training our students and maybe even creating departments within schools of public health that, you know, are departments of, you know, public health activism or politics. Mm. Um, that's not going to solve the bigger picture problem that you were alluding to, but if I'm going to localize it to, to where I sit, I think those are some things that we can do. And, you know, I, I, I applaud my colleagues and, and you guys certainly too, who, who are out there having these discussions and pushing these out into the public realm. I think that's an essential thing we can do in, in this moment. But I think for fundamental change, there has to be some, some grappling with fundamental reorganization of different facets of our society. Um, we have an election coming up in November uh, with, two very stark choices, perhaps not as stark as some people had hoped for, um, but nonetheless, there's a path, there are two very different paths ahead of us, and what we can do in that context, I think, will also help us uh, into the future in one way or another. But to me, this is very helpful because you've just given some very concrete things that can actually happen within the existing structure, let's, in this case, of the, of the university. I had Kathleen Tierney on um, a couple days ago, disaster sociologist who used to direct the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado. And um, she, you know, her discussion is so similar to your discussion, but on the emergency management side. And she said this extraordinary thing. She said, I think we're, you know, we're at a point where we just need to realize that reducing vulnerability to disaster is going to require collective action. But I don't think she means by that that we have to overthrow the state. I think there's a lot of different forms of collective action. I think this is to Patrick Roberts's point that are happening in front of us all the time right now. Like, for example, most of America is doing things they don't want to do because they don't want to kill their neighbor. Mm -hmm. That's a form of collective action. But the question is, when we come out, how do we then solidify that into structures that have some longevity? Your Lazaretto behind you there, David, that lasted mm -hmm. a century. One maybe small example, but... 
I don't know, Michael has suggested a couple of things. David, what, what's on your mind in terms of concrete things you could see emerging in this moment that might get us closer to public health serving the function you think it should? Well, I think um, I, I echo what, uh, what Mike said. And I, um, I think in, in historical perspective, we can see in past epidemics, innumerable cases of um, panic and xenophobia, okay, in which historians have abundantly documented these really um, uh, terrible and unproductive uh, reactions to epidemics. But we also see time after time something that historians maybe haven't paid as much attention to, which is solidarity, which is mm. caregiving and volunteering. Um, the free Africans in Philadelphia in 1793 and in the other yellow fever epidemics, many other Philadelphians volunteering to help out and um, at great potential risk to their own health and safety. And um, I think we can see again today a tremendous desire, it, in addition to the panic and xenophobia, we see a desire to help. We see the, you know, we see the uh, New Yorkers out uh, applauding the healthcare workers. Um, we see really a desire to do something. And at this point, it's mostly unfocused and unchanneled. But in the coming weeks, we're going to need, I, you know, I keep hearing about uh, the number of people we're going to need to hire to do contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you don't need an MD. You don't need to be a trained uh, nurse or even community health worker to do contact tracing. You need um, a minimum of training and you need, uh, you, need, you need bodies, right? And we've got, unfortunately, all kinds of people with nothing but time on their hands and lots of unemployed people that are gonna be um, needed for contact tracing and other work. And I, I think there is a potential point of intervention. Uh, we're seeing this happen in South Africa today, a tremendously ambitious program to, um, of, of contact tracing to, to fight this pandemic. And maybe that's one of the potential points of intervention where we can capitalize on the will to help and um, create networks beyond professionals, beyond uh, scientists, researchers, and healthcare practitioners. This is uh, echoed by my colleague and Michael's colleague, Esther Chernak, who's been kind enough to come on multiple times on COVID calls. And she calls this uh, uh, shoe leather epidemiology um, and, and was echoing exactly what you were talking about there, David. And um, she's hopeful too that there are technological interventions which can be innovated in this moment too, which expands it beyond even the population you're talking about, but also potentially includes um, people who have other types of talents and skills who in this moment can apply them in that, in that direction. I have one more question. We're up on time, but I, I do want to get one more question because um, this helps me uh, bring you guys both back later because uh, we're going to talk about this now and we'll talk about it again. This, to my mind, this is not, this is not, this is a slow disaster. It's, it's playing out over time. Um, and I wonder right now, my brother asked me this, so I'm going to ask you this. Is, is Dr. Fauci going to, is there going to be a statue of Dr. Fauci <laughs> on the National Mall? Or is he going to get fired? And what he means by that question is, in the months to come, 
can public health hold its own in the overwhelming pressure, not just in Washington, D.C., in many state houses across America, to let it go in one ear and out the other, what the public health officials are saying, and reopen the beaches and reopen everything else. Mm -hmm. So how effective, all of the problems we just talked about notwithstanding, how prepared and effective are public health leaders right now to end up with that statue of Dr. Fauci on the mall and not, not see him get fired. He may, Mike, he may David, well get, he David may well get fired and end up with a statue on the mall, um, <laughs> as, as a martyr to, uh, as a martyr to right, politics. Right. Mike, what do you think? I, I, I was going to suggest something similar. Um, you know, I, I think that part of the problem with the, I mean, look, pandemics, always have a political piece to them. Um, but part of the problem with the way this is playing out is that it's not just political. There's, you know, uh, an anti-science, anti-public health, anti-medicine, and in some ways anti-human being current that is running through this response. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, Fauci has been there reminding the president and his leadership team that, uh, you know, if we reopen now, the disaster gets worse. If we reopen in the wrong way, the disaster gets much, much worse. We're not out of this for a while, but there are clear public health tools um, that once, you know, we have, uh, you know, gotten through this first stage, that through testing and contact tracing, um, we will be able, as best we can, to create a new abnormal um, that's going to last for a little while. We will get back to our lives to some degree, but we're going to live in this new abnormal until either there are effective treatments, until enough people get infected that there's nowhere for the disease to turn, or there's a vaccine developed. Um, we can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, you know, the latest data out of New York and out of California, there are a few other places with this, this, these high antibody rates um, have changed some of the discussion already just in the last 24 to 48 hours. So I think we have to buckle up, wash our hands, stay home until told otherwise, wear a mask outdoors until we're told otherwise. Um, remember that there are a lot of people out there who are suffering because they can't afford to stay home. Um, I, I saw a bus pass my house earlier and the buses have mostly been empty, but the bus was pretty crowded today, which, you know, I, 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 I know that people are going and coming to work, but it scares me that not everybody can stay home and that we aren't having discussions about, you know, basic income in this time or rent suspensions and mortgage suspensions for many people. Um, you know, the, there, there are economic decisions that we could be making to make people safer as much as public health decisions. And I think we're lacking the leadership at the national level. We've seen some of the governors come together um, to, to start to address some of these challenges about testing and um, contact tracing, but there needs to be national leadership right now. And we're, we're not there at the moment. David, final point to you. Um, Michael's called it the new abnormal. I hadn't heard that yet. I'm now, I'm going to, steal that and use that. I think that's incredibly <laughs> productive and useful for us right now. What do you see in the coming months? I do think there, I do think there's a space for um, activism, for learning lessons. Um, my, 
my number one lesson from this has been humility. Um, I didn't share with you uh, both the, the things that I was absolutely sure of when this started about epidemics and history um, that I now realize I was um, a little bit too sure of. And um, so I'm going to try and hold on to that sense of humility, but also um, try to find an opportunity in this tragedy. And I, um, I do, I think there's even um, a possibility at this moment to uh, push a little bit beyond our deeply entrenched political polarization and speak with people, speak with the people who are advocating reopening businesses, reopening everything um, to to find um, some kind of common ground for the future because I really don't think that they don't care about human life. Um, and uh, I think this emergency uh, can provide an opportunity for new alliances to be built. It certainly at the very least demands activism, continued activism, no question about it. David Barnes and Michael Udell, we did not get to talk about cholera, we did not talk about AIDS, we did not talk about public health in other countries, and so my plan to bring you back later is going to have to be enacted. Thank you so much for this hour, it just sped by. And I wanna remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls. We are on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, and tomorrow, please do join me when I talk to Virginia Heffernan, She's been doing some amazing thinking and writing about the Trump administration, but also about governors and Governor Cuomo in this time, as well as disaster literature. Um, so please join me tomorrow for that conversation. Michael and David, thank you both. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Bye, everybody. <laughs>